This week on Best in Show, we're talking to four-time Oscar winner and current three-time Oscar nominee, Katherine Martin, about sparkling costumes and tight butts. And we're revisiting the first movie to ever win the Sundance Jury Award. Plus, we have a data-driven discussion about how that Andrea Riseborough nomination played out on Letterboxd. And welcome to Best in Show, a limited podcast series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. I am Mia Vicino, the West Coast editor at Letterboxd, and Best in Show is all about awards season. We are exactly halfway through this limited series, and we are having a wild and fascinating time discussing the noms and gongs, the snubs and surprises in cinema history, and meeting some of this season's contenders. But mostly, we are celebrating cinema, just like we always do here at Letterboxd. And here to celebrate cinema with me are my loyal Best in Show besties, Hollywood veteran and our editorial producer, Brian Formo. Present. (laughs) And our editor-in-chief, Gemma Gracewood. I'm here too. Also on our team, outside in the broadcast van with their pork rinds and pickle juice, are our resident fact finder, Jax Fax, and the man with the tape deck himself, our editor, Slim. Thank you, as always, to these silent gents. And now, as always, we start with the news. It's been somewhat quiet on the awards front with just the Grammys and the AARP Movies for Grown Ups award winners, but it's a nice little breather before the flood of Guild and Academy Awards to come. And in that breathing space, there's been a different flood. Reactions flowing across film Twitter and industry emailers and podcasts aplenty to the news of Andrea Riseborough's Oscar nomination for a leading actress for her role as the titular Leslie in Two Leslie. We wondered whether to wade into these stormy waters, didn't we, Gemma? Do we need to be another voice in this sea of voices and opinions? But I mean, especially in a show where we have an interview with one of my and your all-time favorite movie people, Catherine Martin. Do we have something to say about the Andrea Riseborough affair? Well, yes, when we looked at our own letterbox data, we realized we do have an interesting story of our own to tell about to Leslie and the power of a nom. This is the industry we're in, after all, and if we want to affect change in our little corner of the world and maybe help someone else deserve and get a nomination in future, it's worth investigating the players and the game they're playing. That's right. So we are going to take some time to talk about why it matters, why it's silly, and why you're probably seeing reactions all over the place. So first, a recap. About 10 days before the Oscar nominations came out, there were suddenly all these posts about Two Leslie, and specifically Andrea Riseborough's performance. On various famous people's social accounts, like Gwyneth Paltrow, Edward Norton, Kate Winslet, you know, all these people who have massive fan bases. And Kate Blanchett also gave Andrea that shout out at the Critics' Choice Awards. And while that sounds like friends supporting friends, those are some pretty special friends. It's definitely an uneven playing field if you have an army of A-listers in your network to generate buzz out of left field. Then the Oscar nominations dropped, and there was Andrea Riseborough among the five lead actress nominees. It gave the Academy enough pause that they investigated the tactics. Now, we are not in agreement that awards should be million-dollar campaigns only, but Brian, our esteemed Hollywood veteran, earn your job title and explain the tactics that ultimately led to an investigation here. Please. Certainly. And just uh, right up top, we have to say that the Academy has already weighed in in the past week, and they said, 
that there are some changes that they'll have to do that they'll announce at after this award season. It'll probably be something in the realm of social media, but they are not going to rescind Andrea's nomination, and they shouldn't, in my opinion. Do we all agree they shouldn't take this away? Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is a rational response, both like tackling a potential issue and letting her keep it. She she put in the work. Uh, in regards to the investigation, essentially, the, the simplest way to say it is that there are rules. As much as like people want like things to just kind of drop out of thin air, there are rules, and this particular rule that they that they rubbed up against was actually put in place. Back in 1997, after an aggressive phone call campaign for the actor Jeffrey Rush for the film Shine, he actually won Best Actor for that role. So the rules that were created after Jeffrey Rush had uh, 70 phone calls on his behalf to Academy members, it stipulates that whoever is hired on behalf of a film can only contact Academy members one day a week about a specific film. And publicists adhere to this because it would be bad for business if they got a film disqualified by overstepping. It hurts their job prospects. Now, with Two Leslie, you had the movie's director, Michael Morris, the director's wife, Mary McCormick, who is also an actress, and their agents messaging people multiple times a day during this 10-day period about this specific movie and explicitly asking them to post gushingly on social media, specifically about Andrea Riseborough. You have Titanic actress Frances Fisher putting a specific number out there. She wrote, we only need 218 first place votes to get a nomination. And she also said actresses like Daniel Deadweiler and Viola Davis were quote unquote locks who didn't necessarily need support. Honestly, Frances's post is probably the biggest blight, the reason why there isn't an investigation to begin with. Now, why does this matter? Nominations help a smaller movie be seen. They help the careers of those who are nominated. That first nomination does change drastically the types of roles and the size of those roles that you get after it. Recently, you have Kate Blanchett saying in her Critics' Choice speech to do away with awards entirely. But let's be honest, her career was boosted after her first nomination for Elizabeth. In the next breath, she's used her televised speech to punt for Andrea. And so, this kind of campaigning helped Jeffrey Rush out immensely. He did win. After that initial win, Jeffrey Rush did go on to get three more nominations. Once you kind of start getting nominations, you collect them. So, that first nomination is an industry pipeline. Settle in, because we got some facts from Jack and, and a little bit of math. Also, hearkening back to our very first episode, I know you like math, Mia. Are you excited? Oh, yes. Yeah, my favorite <laughs> subject. I'm a math genius, so let's okay, do it. so when Two Leslie <laughs> premiered at South by Southwest a year ago, in March last year, it had a total of 142 logged watches on Letterboxd. Same festival where Everything Everywhere All at Once launched. So, you know, quite a difference in numbers of people who saw the film at the time. Then it had a limited theatrical release in America in October, and that number climbed on Letterboxd by only a few hundred to 524 total views logged. And it sat at that time on just over a thousand watch lists. These are teeny tiny numbers for a release week. On January 5th, one week before Oscar nomination voting, to Leslie is sitting at just over 1,500 total logged views and 3,000 watch lists. This, you know, still, these numbers still feel like gradual natural growth, no hint of a campaign. Mia, 
don't know if you've been doing some math around the percentages here while I've been throwing numbers out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been doing this all in my head, off the top of my head. Uh, both of those growth periods represent an increase of logged watches in the 200% oh, range. Uh, in the 200% range. Wow, I love your amazing fast math. Okay, so a gentle doubling over time really is what we're looking at now. Oscar nomination voting ends on Jan 17th. This is right in the thick of the celebrity campaign on social media for Andrea. On that date, on the date that nomination voting ended, Two Leslie now has almost 3,000 total logged watches and is on almost 10,000 watch lists. Like, this is not the week of release. So in a week and a half, it's had as many letterboxed diary logs as it had in 10 months. And it's been available on digital for months since October. Do you want some more numbers? I feel like a forensic mathematician. <laughs> good, yes. good, good. Is, is a forensic <laughs> mathematician a thing? I like. I am Russell Crowe. Welcome to my beautiful mind. Here we go. <laughs> In the week before Oscar <laughs> nominations day, it's added another thousand watches and two thousand watch lists on the day of the Oscar nominations, January twenty fourth. I honestly, this is so forensic. It's ridiculous. 700 people log the film and almost 7,000 people add it to their watch lists. I'm going to say that again. 700 people log to Leslie on Letterboxd in a single day. Mia, my math brain, do you remember the total number of logged views the film had on its release in October? Easy. 524. So, more people logged to Leslie on Oscar nominations day than during its entire theatrical and VOD release month. Overall, it's had more than a 400% increase in logged views since the campaign for Andrea began, and it's now sitting on more than 27,000 letterboxed watch lists, and it's available to rent. Yes, I did that, and because it's been out for a while, it's not even $19.99. It's that, it's that cool $6.99, I believe. Very affordable. You know what, too, Leslie? It is fine. It's a fine and good drama about the perils of alcoholism and those who enable alcoholics, and I... I wish I knew more about Leslie herself through the story, but I do also like a movie that doesn't spoon feed me. So all in all, I enjoyed the experience. And as far as grand movie characters of 2022 go, Leslie is no Lydia Tarr or Evelyn Wong or Mamie Till. But you know, Andrea is amazing. And I hope the campaign by her friends doesn't sour her own career. We actually, I, I dug into the journal files and we actually asked Michael Morris, the director, a few questions about his film before its premiere last year. And I wanted to read the answer to the question, what's one thing you'd love viewers to know about your film before they go in? Because it illuminates Andrea's work. He said, he talked about Leslie's pink suitcase um, being a very important prop in the movie. He said, I love everything about our suitcase. We even painted it this specific color. But one thing I forgot to check was what it was actually like to open and close. On our first day, we shot a scene where Leslie has to pack it quickly and we realized it was incredibly difficult to close. What Andrea did with this unexpected obstacle, how she instantly made it not a problem, but part of Leslie's world, is now one of my favorite little details of the movie. And he said that a year ago, and, and I think that's a really great insight into the work she did here. He also said that Barbara Loden's Wanda would make the perfect double feature, and I think he's right. I can confirm you're right, Gemma. So, Two Leslie is not quite as slow and quiet and soft as Wanda, but I was definitely thinking about her while watching this one. What about you both? Are you in the 400%? One of us, one of <laughs> well, us. I just said Google I was, I gobble, suppose. One of us. <laughs> yeah. 
So it worked. The campaign worked. We all watched yeah. too loosely. Uh, I I watched this the week that we recorded this episode. Uh, like I think we all did. Yeah, Wanda would make a good double feature, but I think Wanda is also a bit more of an interesting performance from Barbara Loden, in my opinion. My hot take is that if anyone was nominated for Two Leslie, Mark Maron really surprised me. Riseboro is good. I'm not saying that she's not. Uh, but weirdly, I feel like she's let down by a script that was written by the real-life son of her character. There's not, there's no real internal life to her beyond her addiction. Wow, that just made the movie better for me. I didn't know that detail. I'll just toss to a Letterbox member, uh, Matt Smith, who summarized my thoughts in one sentence so we can move on. Came for Riseboro, obviously. Was pleasantly surprised by Marin. Aww. I wasn't blown away, but her nomination sits fine with me. It would sit a little better if it didn't come out the way that it did. I actually don't view it so much as a win for independent cinema. I view it as a win for a lengthy career of Riseboro, who's worked with many high-profile directors and actors, and she's been great for many, many, many years. And many famous people could push this to the top of watch lists or ballots, even sight unseen. I'm I'm glad you brought this up, Brian, because I, I understand why folks are touting this as uh, as an indie cinema win. But I think that Paul Mescal's Best Actor nomination for After Sun might be more indicative of this point because, you know, like Paul is not an established industry name. He doesn't have this network of famous friends necessarily. And um, the movie Small Budget was mostly from funds from the Scottish Lottery. Also, Debut director Charlotte Wells does not yet have an actress wife to relentlessly campaign for her like two Leslie director Michael Morris does. Are you volunteering? (laughs) I could do it. I would do it easy. But again, again, Andrea is great. And it's at least cool to see some long overdue recognition for her work. Yeah. And I was wondering if this was a, you know, a quote unquote deservability moment. We've seen quite a few of them over the years. Like she's been directed by Inuritu. She's been directed by Brandon Cronenberg. She's Nick Cage's Mandy Bloom, for goodness sake, the titular role in Mandy. She's brilliant and everybody loves her and she may not get another leading role. But is this the moment to give her the big push? Is Leslie her best role or not? It's just so weird. Why is Hollywood like this? There is an unavoidable discussion about who gets to build their career through supporting character roles, who gets offered all of those smaller parts that help you build up your filmography and to work with directors that we just talked about and who celebrities feel comfortable campaigning on behalf of. If you don't understand why some people are extra upset, it is because it has more to do with this than anything else. The goalposts were moved while the game was being played, and it ended up being against publicists and performers who adhered to that set rule. So, like, Deadweiler was on talk shows. She was doing it regularly. She's so brilliant on all the talk shows, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm glad she's still up for a BAFTA because I want to see her on some more talk talk shows. She's she's my favorite award season celebrity right at this moment. Yes, yes. So as I keep saying, Andrea's excellent as she always is, but better than Danielle until uh, I've seen both and I just I just don't think so. But I but the fact that she released this down to earth drama and the whimsical Matilda the musical the same year really shows off her range, even though I guess both roles are her playing bad moms. Bad moms get noms. <laughs> bad moms do get noms, Brian. Take Lydia Tarr. She is an EGOT, which brings us to the Grammys, where real-life person and good mom Viola Davis picked up a Grammy Award for Best Audiobook for her memoir, Finding Me, making her a real-life EGOT winner. That is an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, 
and a Tony as originated on the hit sitcom 30 Rock. (laughs) So Viola wasn't nominated for an Oscar this year, which we have discussed, but she has something even more rare. She is the 18th person in history to win the grand slam of show business, well, American show business, that is. I was trying to work out if if there's such a thing as an EBGOT, like an Emmy, a BAFTA, a blah, 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 blah. We'll figure that out. And she's actually the only, the third woman to have an EGOT with all acting wins after Helen Hayes and Rita Moreno. A lot of the other EGOTs often get one of their trophies for producing alongside other jobs. Yeah, Audrey Hepburn got her Emmy through a programming. So, oh. I mean, she's a, she's, she's a very worthy EGOT, but I, I was surprised by the programming mention. Now, someone who was actually very close to becoming an EGOT last year was Lin-Manuel Miranda. He did not, however, because Encanto lost the Best Original Song Oscar to Billie Eilish for No Time to Die. But the Encanto team did clean up at last weekend's Grammys, winning Best Song for We Don't Talk About Bruno. No, no, no. (laughs) Best Compilation Soundtrack and Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media. That is a mouthful. (laughs) It is a mouthful. And, you know, if you're wondering why, uh, why they won a year after they did not win the Oscar, it's because the Grammys eligibility window is a lot longer um, and one other film-related win at the Grammys, Taylor Swift, who picked up Best Music Video for All Too Well, her short film. Uh, in her speech, she said she was very grateful to have her music peers recognize her as a director, a, a, a direction she's very much angling to go in. Um, All Too Well has a whopping 4.3 rating on Letterboxd, and it stars the whales Sadie Sink. Another connection to the Oscars. Before we get back into film-specific awards, we did a bunch of research on two other films that essentially birthed award season as we know it, Hester Street and The Deer Hunter, which you can read all about in our Best in Show journal entry this week. Now, back to the program. The American Cinema Editors Guild, or ACE, released their Eddie nominations last week. All five of the films nominated for Best Film Editing at the Oscars place here. Yeah, so that's Tar, Top Gun, Maverick, Banshees of Inishir, and Everything Everywhere All at Once in Elvis. Yes, but like all these craft guilds, they have more nominations than the Oscars because they divide up movies into genre categories. So you have Best Edited Comedy, Best Edited Drama, Animated Film, Documentary, and Non-Theatrical Documentary. Ah, double documentaries. And you know what? Documentary editors do sift through the most footage and In many ways, any documentary director will tell you that the editor is a co-director, essentially, a co-storyteller. So they're essential to a good documentary. And anything that can highlight Brett Morgan's Moon Age Daydream is, in my opinion, a good category. That man worked for so long on that slice of kaleidoscopic glory to the point where he told me when I talked to him for journal that he would never get those years back. He would never get that time back with his wife and kids and he maybe had some regrets about that. So Brett Morgan and his family need some noms. Thank you to the Eddies for for bringing a nom home for him. I also love the non-theatrical motion picture editing category too. It is nice to see Fire Island somewhere this awards season. We did see the acting ensemble on it at the Gotham Awards, but that's about it. And we don't talk about Fire Island enough. That editing was as hot as that cast. So thank you, Brian A. Cates, for your work there. 
And weird, the Al Yankovic story, which um, was a streaming only release, stupidly. Anyway, so that's in the in the same category, non-theatrical. It was edited incredibly well by Jamie Kennedy for Maximum Laughs. So yay for them. Go the Yiddies. The other big winners this past week were from the American Association of Retired People's Movies for Grownups Awards. Finally. <laughs> Finally, Finally we arrived at Brian's so favorite awards. These, these were so fun. Brian and I had had a lot of fun digging through their history. Yeah, basically, we saw once they gave an award to a movie that we both love that isn't loved enough, down, down with love, 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 love. So much love in that sentence, but there's a, not enough love for down with love. Uh, they gave that best time capsule back in 2003. So then we had to dive into every year to see what they were doing. Some mentions like a Donald Sutherland win for best actor for Aurora Borealis. This is a movie I've never heard of. And I love me some Donald Sutherland. Uh, and that also made me look up the rules. And yeah, you have to be 50 or older to get nominated. So yes, my time is coming. My time is coming slowly <laughs> with every year. And yeah, you can also tell occasionally when they're like waiting for someone to turn 50 and they would just slide in a nomination that didn't make sense looking at Brad Pitt for World War Z as soon as he hit 50. I don't know why that's up for acting. Best actor for World War Z? Okay. I'm talking Donald. Donald has never been nominated for an acting Oscar. Donald Sutherland. That's a crime in my opinion. So. That's that a is a crime. So the what AARP the hell? can rectify that any way they want to. The Academy did give him a career uh, governor's award Oscar, but he should have been nommed hand over fist multiple okay, times. Okay, so so who who for this year? What are the what are the big ones? Well, Top Gun Maverick won the coveted best movie for grown-ups wow. award. But Elvis <laughs> won Best Time Capsule and Best Director for Bob. I'm just Lerman. giggling because I love that the Best Movie for Grownups is the name of an award. It's so <laughs> it's so condescending. I love it. And then it's for Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we found out they used to have a category called Best Movie for uh, Grownups Who Never Grew Up, and the nominees were like Finding Nemo. It was a uh, Oh best God. movie for grown-ups who refuse to grow up. Oh, so it was basically the best the best children's movie of the year. Yeah. It, I think it was supposed to be for like the Judd Apatow type stuff, but it just kept ending uh, up being no. Pixar. So they they, oh. they, they they X'd it. Sad. Well, that's the end of the news and the perfect editing swipe. The most immaculate segue to our behind the curtain segment this week. Behind the red curtain, that is. Brian Mia. My dear Best in Show Besties, if I said Red Curtain Trilogy to you, would you know what three films I'm talking about? Oh, I know. Twin what? Peaks, season one, two, and the movie Twin Peaks, The Return, the 17-hour <laughs> movie. Actually, I don't think it's a movie, but, you know, Sight and Sound does. Okay, okay. I just know Mia is going to get this. Mia, <gasps> please bring the answer home. Oh, okay, Brian stole my answer, but I think I got it. It's got to be, it's got to be, Baz Luhrmann and Cruz, Strictly Ballroom, Romeo plus Juliet, and Moulin Rouge, correct? Yes, those are the first three feature films from this delightful group of Australians who all met at like drama theatre film school who include director Baz Luhrmann, writer Craig Pierce, and production and costume designer Catherine Martin. Of those three, CM, as she's lovingly known, is the only one to have won an Academy Award. In fact, she's won four. Hmm. Boss, 
has not yet won an Oscar, but he has won Golden Globes and BAFTAs, and he also won CM's Heart. They have been married since 1997. Aww. So Elvis has eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Actor, Cinematography, Makeup and Hairstyling, Editing, and Sound. And once again, Catherine Martin is in the running for both Best Costume and Best Production Design. Catherine is nominated three times for Elvis, as she and Baz are part of the Best Picture nomination as the film's <sighs> producers. So we were so excited to talk to Baz's better half about her role in the film's costume and production design departments. I'm excited y'all got to speak to his most trusted collaborator. Excited. Try feverish, Brian. Exhilarated. Uh, freaking the F out. So anyone who truly loves me agrees that Strictly Ballroom is one of the best films ever made in the history of cinema. It's an underdog sports film about passionate young artists fighting to dance their own steps in the repressive world of amateur ballroom dancing in the Sydney suburbs. And when Fran, the ugly duckling dance studio assistant, calls handsome ballroom star Scott Hastings a gutless wonder, it's one of the greatest status reversals in rom-com trope history. And you know what? Hit or miss, every single one of their films since has been a batty, wonderful, gorgeous, hot mess. Yes, they have taken on Shakespeare, turn-of-the-century Paris, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and colonial Australia. So it is really no surprise that Baz and Catherine took on the tragic glamour of the one and only Elvis Aaron Presley. Because if there is one thing that links all of their films, it's pants. Excellent pants. So let's hear from the woman behind the wiggle-friendly wardrobe, Catherine Martin. We needed a little chat about Scott Hastings' gold jumpsuit in the Strictly Ballroom finale. It feels like Elvis's jumpsuits are a, are a natural evolution of your Bago Pago days and the, this, this beautiful through line of sparkle that you've brought to our lives. Wow, that is a really interesting um, comparison that I've never ever thought of. <gasps> and when I was at drama school, I was very serious young insect and was very into minimalism. I was much more a concrete box kind of a girl um, than I was um, sparkles. And one of the great things I think Baz Luhrmann brought into my life was he unleashed my inner sparkle that, in fact, I have obviously a secret penchant for the uh, throwing of a few sequins around and he kind of saw that in me and um, for better or worse has unleashed it on the world my love of the sequence. Are you saying you're a bit of a friend a little bit of a you know quiet unremarkable? Yeah I'm a bit of a friend. I think a big moment at the end I think that um, you know Baz is a great discoverer of talent and a great you know a great encourager and there's nothing he likes better than people becoming themselves or coming into their own. And I think about so many of the movies that he's made. And I was only thinking the other day about a television series we made called The Get Down and how every single one of those young boys is now a huge star. And I just go, wow, he had that ability to see the sparkle in all those people and kind of <laughs> unleash it on the world. So that's really um, props to him. But I think the, the connection is that for ballroom dancers, um, 
you know, the glamour of the jumpsuit because the jumpsuit was really Bill Belouve, who was the costume designer at NBC, really there was a language of jumpsuits in the 70s. That was something. I'm not quite sure how that developed. Did it develop from a boiler suit? I'm not sure. But it's certainly Bill Ballou, if it was a nascent trend, he took it and he rocketed it to the stars because he had the language of television. So the Osmonds wore jumpsuits, um, you know, Jackson 5 wore jumpsuits, all coming out of kind of that Bill Ballou language and Elvis. And so I think ballroom dancers around the world look to this, um, th- these bejeweled, cat suits as a kind of a key to um, glamour and making their art form of dance very connected to popular culture, which is interesting. Because in the 70s, you also have um, Mick Jagger famously wearing jumpsuits, albeit in a different style. But um, I have seen images date approximately from the same period ads of very early 70s, late 60s of men's jumpsuits. Um, uh, I know Lansky's, the um, clothier, Elvis's um, clothier um, very specifically in the 50s, but throughout his entire career was carrying jumpsuits in the very early 70s, some even with capes. I love it. So film, film itself is fantasy, and you and Baz are two of the best fantasy creators in the history of motion pictures. I I, I think it's fair I to say. I'm deciding that it's fair to say. I'm really curious about perception versus reality. Like, I feel like you'd never be seen in your trackies in public, Catherine. I imagine, I, when I imagine you relaxing, it's in the most luxurious surroundings in some kind of silk getup yeah. that's, that's come fresh from the silkworm farm. And please don't deny me oh. of this fantasy. Please keep your fantasy. I will never divulge the truth because you were so disappointed in me. I was um, so terribly disappointed in me because <laughs> fantasy is so much better than reality. I think that's why. Oh, agree. Love. Like I sometimes think, what is to define the word glamour or romance or, and it's the world being just that little bit better than it is or a little bit more like we would want it to be. Ultimately, they're both very positive things because being in um, a romantic and glamorous place is an inclusive, warm place where everyone feels and looks great and we're all interacting in a positive way together. So I always think that encouraging yourself to be a little bit better than you are in every way is a good thing, you know? Similarly to this idea of fantasy, Elvis itself is also exploring a star persona and how Elvis, like so many other artists, used costume and spectacle to mask insecurities and stage fright. So how did that feed into your work? Well, I think that it was something that was really central I think, to a connection that Austin had with Elvis. Because you can imagine he could draw from real life going, ah, what have I done? I've signed up to portray, uh, um, 
one of the most defining figures of the 20th century. Whatever Elvis's flaws are, he's inarguably one of the great performers of the 20th century and defined style um, and is still so recognisable even today, iconically, both physically and vocally. And so I think that that sense of how did I get here? What is the alchemy that brought me to this place? Which I think was, in my view, these are the stories I make up in my head <laughs> to yeah. help me get inside the character. But I think, I'm going to think Elvis, incredibly poor family. Um, he was the first one from his family to graduate from high school. And his level, it's like such an interesting um, sort of quintessential mythological story about a performer or um, a leader or, a you know, there are those sort of um, so many mythological stories are about a child found somewhere. Um, we're talking about Jesus, you know, a yeah. kid from a manger who somehow comes to greatness and they're not even quite sure how that happened. And the great doubt and the insecurity that is around that, because you're never quite sure where that talent comes from. There's not, you can't point to that person. And then the enormous responsibility, because you just feel like the terrified 13-year-old who wanted to learn how to play the guitar. But when you, when you walk down a corridor, 300 girls are falling over, screaming, fainting, and there's this enormous disconnection between your inner life and your outer life and trying to navigate through those things. And I think that that is a constant struggle for an actor, particularly a famous actor or any kind of performer who has an ability that is, you know, it is really magical and it's an alchemy yeah. because it is about skill and ability and about um, hard work and all those things, but it's also about the uh, uh, about a sort of a magical thing where all those things can be dragged into a single communication through one person. Like the pressure is when I see them walk on set before a big moment, like Austin before a big dance number or the '68 special, and you think everybody. Literally thousands of people are expecting you to project all of this into a piece of ground glass, you know, into a bit of glass. And then it's captured now digitally, you know, 010101 yeah. into a box. And then somehow it's reprojected and people connect to that moment. And to me... I think that is alchemy. That is magic right there. Oh. Well, I have a specific example for you that I'd love to ask you about, which is, you know, the first watch is all about being immersed in this in this um, Baz Luhrmann world. This, the second and third watch is often about, for me, trying to work out why a particular scene actually hit quite so hard beyond the yes. performance that's on the screen. And it was the it was the booby scene when Elvis is about to go off to Florida, I think. He's in that pink shirt. His mum is in that gorgeous, darker pink dress with the offset ruffled neckline. And they're hugging in the yeah. bedroom, cheek to cheek. I I had a moment where I was like, what is, 
I need to ask Catherine Barton, and fortunately you're right here. Thanks for, you know, picking up the phone. Um, I was really interested in the costume relationship between mother and son across the film, but specifically in that scene, because I, it did something to me alchemical, mystical, that I don't have the words to explain, but I know you have a giant book that possibly explains it. Look, it's really interesting. One of my most profound experiences at Graceland was a weird moment where I was lucky enough to be in the archives with Andrew Marchese, who's the head archivist there. And the archive's incredible because it has all manner of ephemera, from the most important jumpsuit to a check butt that Vernon Presley kept of, you know, buying I'm joking, but, you know, virtually buying toilet paper for Graceland. You know, that, that, it's that kind of. And I asked to see some of, because in big cardboard archive boxes, they have all of Gladys's, or not all, but many of Gladys's clothes because Elvis kept them all. Oh, wow. And I remember the lid coming off the box and this profound sense of sadness. Like of, I want to use the words unrequited love or sort of, it was like a longing, a sadness, a desire for connection. I couldn't quite describe it. And it was a mauve dress Mm. with sort of a little bit of pink highlight in it. And she very famously loved lilac and mauve and purple. They were her favourite colours. But also in the box, she kept all of the, you know, when there were the the souvenir bracelets and lockets that were produced, you know, that the colonel produced, and she wore them kind of with no irony whatsoever. And I think that the love she had for her son and her complicated, because her youth, no, there's not that much written about Gladys. There is a book about her, and I'm not sure how much is apocryphal. But she was, by all accounts, when you talk to people that knew her, she was an incredibly charismatic personality and incredibly bright and great to have around. And you just wanted to be in her presence, um, very warm. And in her youth, allegedly in the book that I read, she was a brilliant Charleston dancer. And very into, you know, style and glamour and looking good as much as her means could allow her to be. And I think so much of who Elvis is, is wrapped up in that undying confidence and love his mother had for him that she really believed he was truly special. And that loss of him that she knew that she would lose him to the audience. I mean, I truly believe that that is what actually killed her, you know, that, that wrench. And that um, she's a really interesting character because obviously every, without your parents, you quite literally wouldn't exist. But I think that she was just so quintessential to who Elvis was and who he became. And yes, I think that she just loved him so unconditionally that it allowed him 
however terrified he was, to be truly himself. Mm. Gemma just got to share her alchemy moment. So now I have to share what mine was of Elvis. It's near the beginning when all the girls are are watching him doing the wiggle and they start screaming. Mm. And I am so, so curious about how you went about creating wiggle-friendly pants. Um, (laughs) What is the secret to accentuating the Elvis wiggle? Please tell us. Okay, so very interesting journey. So big focus of Baz's was to take the 50s vernacular of clothing and the Elvis style, which has kind of become part of the lexian of sartorial elegance. So there's no sense of punkishness Mm -hmm. about it or... um, sexuality. Yes, there's a suaveness or it's under the surface, but the the connection to the sex part. And so it was about examining the shape of 50s pants to start with. And I work with a wonderful tailor I have for 30 years, Gloria Barber, and her challenge was basically to help us discover this shape. So his pants were pegged, which helps. Pegged means that they were tie- a bit tighter at the bottom, so the leg is a bit of a balloon. So it allows the top of the leg to, like, flap about. So that was one thing that we kind of discovered. The other thing that Gloria is really good at is making a tight butt but a loose front, right, because you don't want it to just be, like, baggy butt. It's got to, you know, to have a nice shape at the back. And then it needed to be baggy enough at the front without looking frumpy or sort of mom jean or old man type thing. So we went through, I don't know how many pairs of pants. They were dubbed squirrel pants because um, (laughs) that was one of the insults that was hurled at him when he was going to school, that he was a squirrel. We'd started on this journey before we got shut down for COVID and Baz is a very good natural dancer and a good mover. And so a lot of these clothes start with him too, like seeing if he can feel how the actor's going to be able to move in the clothes. So he did spend quite a lot of time in COVID, I'm sorry to let out his secret, in um, not not Austin's clothes, it wasn't creepy, we would make a set for him to kind of work out <laughs> and understand the choreography and how the clothes in the 50s connected to the body. Because his big thing was, how do we still keep the sensuality, how do we keep the sexuality of Elvis, the sexuality of his m- movement connected to the clothes, how do we understand it? And it's very difficult to do without moving in them. And um, so it was an exploration and an experimentation. And I think sometimes I thought, poor Austin, he must think that, you know, I'm challenged (laughs) in so many ways. I explore a lot of things just by doing them because you can draw 50 pairs of pants with two pleats in the front. You can explain how you want it to look. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's just a drawing. I can also get you photos or I can get you a sample or I can do this. And sometimes it really is about the human form and the garment. And you can, 
hope and wish that what you drew on a piece of paper or the photo you plucked out of a book that you're going to adapt or whatever is going to work. But until it's actually in fabric on a person and they've connected with it, it's just clothes. It's sort of meaningless. And so (laughs) that's one thing that Baz really on our journey has encouraged and taught me to do is to be fearless about just trying stuff on and workshopping stuff and just not worrying. At first, I think actors think you're crazy because you'd be like, "Mm, welcome to my lair and I've got like 50 pairs of pants in different fabrics. Would you, could you try them on? Because Letterboxd is the social network for film lovers and we do love to talk about obviously Elvis, which, which is such a majestic piece of craft on your part but we'd love to know were there any films that you watched in the research phase or when you were putting the book together Elvis films other films that informed a lot of your work well I watched a lot of Elvis films just to understand the clothes the hair a lot of um archival footage of him a lot of super eight fan stuff and what's incredible about Elvis is the audiovisual material that's available on him is like endless. I mean, I think Baz has a great saying. He says, I want things to look like the way they felt to be there. And so that's always my mantra. Does that feel like it was to actually be there in the moment? Does it feel like that? And so... I think that's another thing that someone like Mandy Walker did brilliantly. She was able to match, you know, and some people have said to me, well, when you mix the footage of Elvis and Austin, I get really confused over who's who. And I go, well, yes, that's the magic of cinema. That's the magic of Austin. And, you know, that amalgam of the real and the created is kind of, I think, what helps tell the story. You have said before that you are no longer tempted to keep film costumes, but if you were, if you were Austin Butler and Elvis, which would you keep? And also if you were Nicole Kidman and Moulin Rouge, which would you keep? (laughs) I had to sneak that in. Oh, Oh my goodness. Okay, well, at the end of the movie, we gave Austin um, the sundog jumpsuit, which is the one he sings the, you know, um, Unchained Melody in. was actually embroidered by the same man who embroidered Elvis's jumpsuit. So don't tell the studio, but we cut the sundial. (laughs) Um, We do have two of them. But to us that was super meaningful because it was a direct connection to Elvis and to that extraordinary end moment in the movie. Mm. Uh, well, we did. I did keep one thing from Elvis. I kept a gold lame suit that was meant for Alton Mason to wear oh. as, but it just through a collaborative moment that ended up being much better than the gold lame suit ever would have been on stage. It ended up not being used. And then my daughter wore it on the red carpet, I think in London. Um, so we kept one wow. thing. And then what would I keep of Nicole Kidman's? They're rather bulky things to store. <laughs> well, what about the diamond necklace? Ooh. Oh, of what course. About that? The real because one. Because that would come yes. in handy. The real one. Yes. yes. Yeah, the real one. 
when everything else falls apart, you can just, you can take that to a... You just, yeah. like, if you're feeling a bit sad <laughs> or your kids have given you a hard time or you're always the idiot in the household who never knows what's going on, you just pop that on. <laughs> and just... Then you're a diamond dog. <laughs> I am boss. Yeah. I'm a boss mm-hmm. bitch. <laughs> Every award ceremony has that moment after the show when you finagle your way into your nominated friend's hotel room, throw on the robes, turn on TCM, pour a nice glass of red wine, and order up room service. That's right. It is the best in show after party. Ah, it's good to be here. It's good to be here. Last week, since we all watched 2023 Sundance movies in the mountains or at home surrounded by mountains of laundry or mountains of room service, I'm not sure how, how you guys did it, but I suggested that we should watch the first movie to ever win the Sundance Jury Grand Prize. This is Marissa Silver's first feature film, Old Enough. She was only 23 years old when she made it. And she got a workshop through Robert Redford's Sundance Incubator System, the Sundance Lab, when she was even younger than that. I mean, I'm always humbled by young filmmakers who have movies and festivals, because when I was 23, you want to know what I was doing? What were you doing, Brian? I, I was DJing <laughs> in a woman's slip under the name of Public Thrust in Knoxville, Tennessee, and calling in sick to work from tambourine bruises from going too hard. Actually, I should be in a Catherine Martin Baz Luhrmann <laughs> Timepiece, I think. What were y'all doing at 23? I was not at Sundance with my debut feature, but yeah. No, no. Yeah, I, I was just like daydreaming about Hollywood while getting stoned in the bathroom of the bookstore yeah, I worked yeah. at. I was not. At that bookstore, you might have encountered some delinquents like an old enough, oh. which follows two young girls, 14-year-old Karen an 11 and three quarter year old Lonnie. I did laugh when she said she was 11 and three quarters. It's my favorite detail of the entire film. (laughs) The movie is just set in a brief window of time of their friendship and Karen and Lonnie have different social backgrounds, which ultimately becomes a bit of the narrative thrust. The safety bubble isn't just about being younger, but also living on certain New York City blocks. This was a first time watch for all of us. I'm curious on both of your thoughts, but I'll start with our Lonnie. Mia, what do you think of Old Enough? I really enjoyed it. And I can't believe I had I had never heard of it prior. Um, 11 and three quarters years old is such a formative and strange age for everyone, period. And then that navigation gets even more complicated when you factor in makeup and dresses and hormones and gender identity panic. And the relationship between Lonnie and uh, Winona Ryder lookalike Karen was so fascinating to me because it it captured the way that preteens latch on to teenagers and, and think they're like the coolest and wisest girls in the world, even though they are just as clueless. And this is also an age when girls begin to dip their toes in the patriarchal pool of being viewed as sex objects, which is a life-shattering realization that Marissa depicts here with, with so much care and authenticity. There's a moment that I was positive directly inspired that infamous car scene from eighth grade. A hunch confirmed by my discovery that Bo Burnham introduced Old Enough at a Metrograph screening. So if you're an eighth grade fan, this is a must watch. And great catch. Great double feature, I have to say. Um, All I have to say is that at the end of my 11th year, I burned the diary that I had kept every single day of that year. Of course, I totally regret it now because what was in there that would make me burn it? But at the time, I I distinctly remember the feeling of the thought of anyone getting their eyes on that diary and having me in hot flames of shame. And I was a Catholic girl 
on the road to confirmation, much like, you know, one of the characters in this film. So you just know I smashed all five stars and the heart button for this. And that's all I've got to say. Get it. It's on Tubi. Just get in there. It is. It's free on Tubi for real. <laughs> that story, Gemma, thank you for sharing. When I was, uh, when I was a teenager, I wrote a, a, I wrote a, movie script that I burned immediately <laughs> after reading it back because I was like, no one, no one can ever. I, uh, oh, and I so want to make that film now. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we just set up a Kickstarter for Brian's film script? Yours yours would be so much better. Part of the reason why I burned mine is actually because uh, I saw The Cell and it was very similar to that, oh, which no. it, to costume design, oh. one of my favorite costumes in that movie. Burning yeah. something at that age is such a violent and final act, and it really, you know, gives me an insight into into how well Marissa Silva captured these girls in this film. She nailed it. Yeah, she did. She did not burn this script. She made a movie. So she's a first-time <laughs> filmmaker. These are first-time actors. I, it makes sense to me that it won the first jury prize out of Sundance because the charm of the film directly comes from the first timiness of it all, in my mm, opinion, including a nice little electro- electronic score by a first and only time composer, Julian Marshall. Hey, Julian Marshall never made another score like that again. That score bangs. Yeah, <laughs> he'd only worked in television prior and he never scored a feature after this again. Uh, but someone who was not a first timer is cinematographer... Michael Ballhaus, uh, the most veteran of the bunch, it looks gorgeous. This is his second English language film. I'm always going, to, I'm only saying that because I always want to name drop his first, which was John Sayles' Baby It's You. It's my <laughs> favorite coming of age movie ever. And I'm just, any chance that I can drop that so that people might get to watch it, I am going to say it. So Ballhaus first did uh, Baby It's You in America, and then he did Old Enough. Um, Old Enough has very unactorly performances that are so well-directed. I'm thinking particularly of the slight nonverbal facial expressions of both actresses. But because I highlighted the age, we do have to mention that this is a 23-year-old who not only directed a movie that was produced by her sister, but also hired Rainer Werner Fassbender's cinematographer, that's Ballhaus. Why? And got the film into Robert Redford's film festival. So she had some access. Oh, yeah. Well, Marissa Silver, writer-director of Old Enough, and Dinah Silver, producer. Joan is the mother of both of them. And their father, uh. Raphael D. Silver, produced Joan's movies, and he also directed a few. But this is in shade because Marissa knew early on to write what you know, and it's, it's a good movie. So, but I am giving her an official Nepo baby pass because her film showed true talent, and I really, really wish that she were able to write and direct more. She did a few more though, didn't she? Yes. I mean like I mean like more and more and more. I want like 50 <laughs> movies, you know? Can I just mention that Sarah Boyd, who plays Lonnie, the 11 and three quarter year old, uh, didn't go on to do much more acting, but she did become an editor and a director. So she stayed in the industry. She's still around. I love that story and I love that for her. We got to wrap things up. This has been a lovely after party. Um, we've got to get to player of the season, but what are we going to watch next week from awards history? I've had a turn. Brian's had a turn. I think, Mia, it might be your turn. Hmm. Hmm. I think so. It is my slumber party and I get to pick the movie. <laughs> we have, we've, actually, we've, we've already mentioned my assignment during this chat. Oh. <laughs> it is the winner 
of the 2003 AARP Best Time Capsule Award. <sighs> Down with love. Ah. Oops, uh, I, oops, I did a spoiler. Slim is going to uh, like pull this audio and like use it in meetings against me. He's always accusing me of spoilers. <laughs> you spoiled the whole thing. We can't do it because you mentioned it once. Oh, no, earlier. you haven't spoiled no, anything. No, no, no. We've already... You haven't spoiled anything. I'm excited. I mean, I already watched this once for your episode of Four Favorites, Mia. I'm happy to do it again. Down with love, 20 years this year. What a treat for us. Oh, yeah. I'm always making people watch this movie. That's one thing about <laughs> me. So we have already extolled our love for the AARP, and I would like to continue that celebration because, as I just mentioned, they were one of the few organizations brave enough to award Peyton Reed's delightful send-up of 1950s and 60s sex comedies with Best Time Capsule in 2003. It is one of only four awards this movie received even though it deserved so, so, so many more, especially nods for costume and production design. That's not even to mention the brilliant cast made up of Renee Zellweger, Ewan McGregor, David Hyde Pierce, Sarah Paulson, and more. And it's particularly relevant now since Reed's new Ant-Man hit theaters February 17th. Oh my gosh, exciting. So if anyone else listening wants to watch Down With Love between this episode and the next and tag your review, Best in Show, we might have a little peek and bring it into the discussion next week. All right, it is time for player of the season. Let's stick on theme and go back to this year's Sundance jury. Jeremy O. Harris, Eliza Hitman, Marley Matlin. Jeremy and Eliza walked out of the magazine Dreams premiere with Marley, who is deaf, when Marley's captioning device malfunctioned, saying that they would watch it when she and audience members like her were covered. So first, that's cool. Secondly, they ended up seeing and awarding the film a jury prize for its creative vision. So this is a shout out for jury solidarity and for the festival making good by Jonathan Majors and Elijah Bynum in the end. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. much for listening to Best in Show, a limited award season series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. We would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it makes us happy, but more importantly, it spreads the word. You can follow all of us and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew, Jack the Facts, Slim for making us sound amazing, Sophie for the episode transcript, and Letterboxd member Trent Walton for the music and... To all of you for listening. Speaking of solidarity forever, I have two words to leave you with tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Inclusion writer. Best in Show is a Tape Deck production. Podcast.